good morning, Resonate Church. How's everybody doing this morning? Let me hear where you're at. How many people, you have the Olympic fever right now. You're in it? Come on, right there. Uh, it's, it's, what's going on? We got some Olympians around? What's going on? Just the reaction. It's legit, right? Um, this has been a crazy week. First of all, my team, uh, uh, my team, listen, it's just laundry. I get that. But my football team that I cheer for won the Super Bowl last week. So, you know, <laughs> there's that. Um, I noticed that uh, the person who wore the, the Patriots jersey last week is conspicuously absent today. And I don't know if we have chased them from the house, but we don't care, do we? We just don't mind. No, I'm just, I'm just playing. Uh, we love uh, we love all teams, but good does triumph over evil. Praise you, Jesus. <laughs> hey, I want to take a moment before we get in the message today. I want to honor and celebrate just something that we get to be a part of as a church, and I want to celebrate really an aspect of our dream team today. I want to thank all of you who are a part of our weekend food program at Mountain View Elementary School, and you might not even realize actually that you are a part of this food program at Mountain View Elementary, um, that everything, every dollar that gets given at Resonate Church, it, a portion of that goes to run a food program where we get to send backpacks of food home every weekend with kids from the school. And these are kids that come from families that they, like, they fight hard to be able to make, just to make ends meet. And there actually is need for food in their homes on the weekend. And so you are a part every single time that you so into Resonate Church of running this food program. And we have a team that's led by Laura Denroche that actually packs the bed. Laura's here this morning. Uh, yeah, go ahead. That packs these every single week. And I found out this week that we actually just began packing the bags for a second school. So come on, let's give it up for this team. Let's give it up for those that pack the backpacks and serve our city this way. So good. So glad to be a part of that. Well, we have, as Rachel said, we are in a message series called Culture Shock. Who are you when culture changes? And it's built around this idea that uh, if we don't know who we are and what we're called to, that we will simply follow the mainstream. And we'll just end up wherever it takes us. But how many know that we are called by God not to be changed by the world, but to change the world? So this series is all about how we enter into and engage with a culture around us that really some would say it's increasingly far from God. And I, I want to take us into the Bible, into the book of Daniel, where we're doing this journey and study from. And we're going to find that actually culture has been this way for a long time. And the mainstream has been really focused in one direction, really for all time. Last week we began this series and we looked at the ways that really culture wants to try and change your identity. And if you missed that message, you can always get caught up in our Resonate Church app with the message there or on our website. And I found this out this week. There's a little bit of feedback on the mic, Pastor Troy. I don't know if there's like another one that you'd be able to grab me. But um, when, I, when I hear humming in my head, I just get a little distracted. So... Um, uh, where were we? <laughs> Culture shock. Something's going on in the world. Amen. Let's pray. Thank you, Jesus, for that. Uh, last week, we said that culture wants to change your name. This morning, here's where we're going. I want to talk about what I want to describe as a Babylon mentality. A Babylon mentality. I want us to point out that really 
What's going on in culture today has always been going on in culture. It's actually not very different. We're going to find this letter written 2,500 years ago speaks directly to our culture today. I want to identify a Babylon mentality in our culture's mindset. And then I just simply want to practically talk about how do you neighbor well in a culture that's opposed to God? How do you neighbor well in a culture that's opposed to God? The book of Daniel is really largely about three or four Hebrew, it's actually four. Uh, there's three, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego that we know their story really well. And then the fourth is Daniel. Uh, the story of four Hebrew boys, they are taken into exile to a country that's not their own, to a, a culture that actually wants to pull God out of their lives. And what we see in the story is that they're able to hold on to their faith and influence culture at the same time. And I think too often in the church, we think it's either or. We think either we're going to live all out for God, which means that we're going to have to isolate ourselves from the world, or we're going to have influence in the world. But if we're going to have influence in the world, we're going to have to somehow water down the message. We're going to have to somehow change the message because culture doesn't want to hear God's word as it is. And we, so we think it's either or. Either we're going to live for God and retract from culture, or we're going to have influence in the culture, but it's going to mean changing a few things. In the book of Daniel, holds out for us a different premise that you can have great faith and great influence at the same time. How do we live in a culture that's got a Babylon mentality and a Babylon mindset? This, this Babylon mindset really is, is promising something to us that it never delivers on. How many of you have ever, you know, you get the emails from like King Baboso or whatever, this prince, that he needs your help to get his inheritance? Come on, let me see if you've ever gotten that email, right? There's a couple of different ways it goes. One is like, you are the one that has the inheritance, and if you just take this little step that involves sending me some money, then you're going to get the rest of the inheritance. Or it's like someone from, you know, some random country that they've got an inheritance. They just need a little bit of help from you. And we're not going to fall for that, right? Like, that's too obvious. It's too easy of a scam. But how many of you have almost been or you have been tricked into a scam that looked a lot better than that? We have some friends, really good friends. And 18 months ago, they were trying to rent out the basement suite of their house. And uh, they were looking for someone to come and, and rent it. So this woman came one day, and she, she looked great. She, she, she spoke really well, and she was very interested in the place. And she said, you know... I want this place. You go ahead and check out my references. And here, I'm going to give you this deposit check right here so you can hold on to it and know that I'm very serious. And just, but just go ahead and check out my references first. And so they phone up the references. And the people on the references, they're like, she's a con artist. She ripped us off for several. She moved in and she never paid anything. And they're like, well, why would she give us these like real references of people that told us that she's a con artist? This is a bit confusing. So they phoned her up and they said, hey, we've spoken to your references and actually we're not interested in having you as a tenant. And she says, uh, well, you actually took my deposit check and so legally I'm entitled to move in. They hadn't cashed the check, but simply by taking possession of a check from her hand, she had them. And the reason that she had given them real references that could tell them that she was a con artist was she wanted them to know how much it was going to cost them if she moved in so that they would actually give her a check to not move in. And our friends wrote her a check to not move into their basement suite. There was something, a check that promised so much on the outside, but in the end it actually took something away from them. And I want to suggest to you this morning that culture is very much the same way. 
Culture is promising something to you and saying, hey, here, take this. This is what you need. When in the end, it's going to take everything from you. The promise of culture never delivers. And it's, it's a Babylon mentality. And we see it all through out the Bible. And how do we know what the promise of culture is that we need to be avoiding? What's this Babylon mentality that we need to watch out for? Here it is, and it's simply this. The promise of culture, the Babylon mentality says this. It says, you'll be happy if you live for yourself. You'll be happy if you live for yourself. Let's see it. It's all throughout the Bible. This nation of Babylon, which is the setting of the book of Daniel, is talked about from cover to cover in the Bible. Let's look at this in Genesis, the very beginning of the Bible. We see talk of Babylon in Genesis chapter 11. There's a group of people, they've gathered together in this region called Shinar, and they say this in verse 4. It says, Come, let us build ourselves a city and a tower with its top in the heavens, and let us make a name for ourselves. So here's what they're saying. They're, like, they're saying, why don't we get together and let's do something epic. Let's build this really great tower. Here's the reason we want to do this. We want to build a name for ourselves. You see, the one trick play of the devil has been the same ever since creation. And it's that you're going to be happy if you live for yourself. Look what the Bible says in verse number 9. It says, therefore, its name of this place was called Babel, because there the Lord confused the language of all the earth. The word Babel literally means confusion. That's why, you know, if a child is babbling or someone's babbling, it's just like confused talking. It's just rambling. Babel is actually where we get the name Babylon, this nation where Daniel and his friends are taken to. And the devil's play, his singular soul play, has been the same since the beginning of time. And it's the lie of the mainstream that you will be happy if you do life for yourself. If you take God out of the top spot and you put yourself in the top spot, that's when you're going to truly be happy. And the interesting thing about this is, you know, the Bible says that, that nothing happens in this space but confusion. If God's not in the top spot in your life, your life will always be chaos. And it's interesting, you know, some of you, you might be new to church. Um, you don't even have to believe the Bible to actually see that this is true. I have a friend of mine, and he wouldn't call himself a, a Christian, but we talk regularly, and uh, he says things to me like, you know, whenever we're talking, and you're talking about what matters in life, and the way you do relationships, and the fact that, that people kind of pressing into their own self-interest, it's never making anyone happy. It's actually just leading to this shallowness that everyone's trying to medicate with more. You know, he'll say things like this. He's like, he's not yet square on the fact that he needs Jesus in his life, but he can look around and say, you know, the way we're doing things, I can actually see it's not working out for anybody. We're all trying to medicate and cope with getting more or having more or doing more for ourselves. And how many know, ever since the very beginning of time, this has led to nothing but confusion. And the Bible makes it very clear that this isn't just culture. And we said this last week. We are not the anti-culture church. You know, let's just show up and let's just like say that you don't want to go out into culture and the world's got it so terrible and it's such a messed up, terrible place. You don't want to go out there, stay inside. Let's stay inside our four Christian walls and do Christian things and sing Christian songs. We are not the anti-culture church. In fact, we're doing this series so you don't become an anti-culture person. <laughs> However... We need to understand that we're, we're not anti-culture, but this mindset, the Babylon mindset, can get its way into the church. The Bible makes this very clear. The end of the Bible, we said Babylon 
is there from beginning to end. And often when, when the Bible's talking about Babylon, many times it's talking about the physical space, this nation that, that took Daniel and his friends captive. Many times it's talking about an actual place, which is now modern-day Iraq. But many times the Bible's not talking about the physical place of Babylon. Babylon is a mindset in the Bible. And this is what we find here at the end of uh, the book of Revelation, in Revelation chapter 18. The Bible's talking about the judgment of this mindset. And it says this, Fallen, fallen is Babylon the great. She has become a dwelling place for demons, a haunt for every unclean spirit, a haunt for every unclean bird, a haunt for every unclean and detestable beast. And it goes on in verse 3 talking about how every nation has fallen prey to this mindset. Then it, it, it's really saying, the Bible's just saying here, you know, it's like unclean beasts and all these things. What's the, what's the Bible really saying here? It's, all it's saying is that everything ungodly in the world is rooted in this Babylon mentality that puts self first and lowers God. Then it goes on, though, in verse number four, and it says this. It says, then I heard another voice from heaven saying, come out of her, watch this, my people, lest you take part in her sins. You see, it's possible, even within the church, that we live from a Babylon mentality when we start serving to be seen. When we become more concerned with our position than we are with loving people, it's possible for a Babylon mentality to come into the church. But today we just want to expose it. The lie of the devil from the beginning of the Bible to the end, from 2,500 years ago in Babylon with Daniel and his friends, to your world, to your workplace. Listen, we, we think that we live in a totally different world and you know the, the world is just getting darker and further away from God. And in some ways it is, but understand, it's always been this way. It's always been one singular lie of the devil that he wants to use. And the reason he only needs one lie is understand this, he is banking every, he's pushing all his chips in. All of his bets are built on one thing, that you will be rooted in your self-interest. That is his one plan. That's his one trick that we will get stuck in our self-interest. That's why today we want to expose that lie, that we're not going to be happy if we're living for ourselves, that our goal is not to build a name for ourselves. It's not to have more, do more, and get more for me. Actually, it's to live in a lifestyle and posture that is wide open to the world around us of putting people first. This is why every day, and I said this in our opening series, that we have up on our website uh, my personal daily declarations where I say every single day, because I have been forgiven by God, I'm not going to uh, find myself uh, debilitated by critics or motivated by praise. I'm not going to have shallow thinking. I'm not going to be petty in my arguments. I'm not going to just hold grudges against people, but I'm going to grow to maturity and fulfill my calling. And this gets our mindset because, because this life is preparation for the next. I say every day, I'm going to value worship over wealth and we over me. Come on, somebody, because God has called us not to have ourselves at the top place, but to put God at the top place. And when we do, it changes everything thing we do in the way we live in our culture. I want to expose the Babylon mentality so then the question becomes, well, how then do we live in a culture that runs on a Babylon mentality? What should we do? How do we respond? I want to pick things up today. Where we left off Daniel last week, he was saying no to some things in the culture around him. He was saying no to some steak and wine, and we went into why he was doing that because it had been presented to idols. And today I don't want to focus on the fact that he said no. I want to look at the way he said no to the culture around him. And this is very important for us as a church. Not just that we say no to certain things that go on around us in the world, but the way we do it. Look at this. 
I love this. Daniel chapter 1, verse 8. We read this last week. Just look at it from a slightly different angle today. But Daniel resolved that he would not defile himself with the king's food or with the wine that he drank. Therefore, he asked the chief of the eunuchs, this, as we learned last week, was a man by the name of Ashpenaz, to allow him not to defile himself. Now, in this one single verse, Daniel's got two actions, and they seem at odds with one another. First of all, it says Daniel resolved. Now, when you resolve something, that's a strong position. That's a strong posture. Like, I resolved that I'm not going to do this thing. Then the very next sentence says that Daniel asked. Now, I would think that if you were resolving about something, like, I'm, I'm resolving, I'm not going to do this thing, that that would actually mean that then you would go and what? You would go and tell Ashpenaz, hey, I've just resolved, I'm not going to do this thing, and so here, let me tell you what's going on. I ain't doing it, man. But no, the Bible says, first of all, he resolved, and then he went and asked, and these two things don't seem to blend, and I think we need to notice this as a church. Daniel resolved, that is, he took a strong posture about what he believed and why, then the Bible says that he asked, he approached the culture around him with a humble spirit, with a humble posture. And this church is so important to how we engage in the world around us. I think this is the most important thing, really, that the concept that we could understand about how we live righteous and holy and godly lives where God is first in a culture that doesn't put God first. Understand, we need to have two things. You need to have strength and you need to have humility. You need to, I want to put it this way. I want to kind of put it kind of physically for you. You need to have strength in your back and you got to have humility and love in your voice you got to have strength in your back. You've got to know what you believe and why. You've got to have something that you take a stand on. But when you approach the culture around you, understand that you approach with humility and with love in your words and in your face. Now imagine, let me just kind of make this physical for you so you can kind of get an image. Imagine that we were meeting for the first time. And you're walking up to me and, and we're going we're gonna to meet and this is kind of how the meeting goes. We're walking up towards one another and then I just went like this. Hey, how's it going? Okay, cool. It's nice to meet you. Um, yeah, why don't we, you know, uh, why don't you tell me what you're all about? It's kind of a quiet conversation. I get the fact that no one really wants to answer, but it's kind of how it would go anyways. If you walked up to someone with your back to them, it's like, well, I don't really want to talk to you right now. Uh, I love this book, Malcolm Gladwell. Uh, he's kind of a pop psychology author, and he's written some fun books. He's got one called Blink, and in that, he looks at some research that, that says that you've got 3,000 different facial expressions that actually have some sort of meaning. Some researchers took seven years of their lives and they categorized 3,000 different like muscle things in your face that meant something. And then they categorized them. There's, there's 39 categories of face talk. But 3,000 different expressions of our face. In fact, if you take things like, you know, little kids going like, you'd have 10,000 or more different things that you could do with your face. This is why when you meet someone, it is face to face. But for too long, the church has moved into the world and we have gone into the world back first. The, the world knows what we're against before they see the love of Jesus in our face. The reason we do this is that it is far easier to lead with your back. When you lead with your back, you don't have to love someone until they do everything just like you. 
I wish someone had preached this message to me when I like went all in for Jesus in grade eight. I went all in for Jesus. I decided that I was going to do my best to see my junior high school all know the love of Jesus that I had encountered and discovered. And so I did the only thing I really knew how to do. I bought some crazy Christian t-shirts that said things like, God's not dead, but you are without him. You know what I mean? It's like... And then just to make it, you know, like really t- like understandable so that people knew it wasn't just my words, it was God's word. You know, we'd always have a verse at the bottom, right? It's like, and this was my closet, was these like really kind of offensive Christian t-shirts. And then, <laughs> and then you know, I would start, I walked around with, with my Bible on the outside of my school books as I walked around school. And listen, understand, my intentions were great. And I, I, I thought I was doing my best to love people. But I was sending an exterior message to people that I did not know and that did not know me. And I walked around that way for years, and I never led anyone to Jesus. I understand, church, you're called to have a strong spine. You better know what you believe. Without it, you will have no moral compass in, in a culture and a society that has a mainstream that does not put God first and just lives exactly like the Bible says, in total confusion. You need to have a strong back. But your strong back should not be the first things people see. It should be a face and a heart of love. This is what, and this is the heart of Jesus. I just, oh man, you look, you, you read the Bible and you're like, man, Jesus, of course, got this. <laughs> you know, like, surprise, Jesus was good at this. Nobody has ever had stronger truth convictions than Jesus, okay? Why? Because the Bible says he is truth. So no one that's ever walked the planet has had a stronger back, more strong convictions than Jesus. And as you read the Gospels, what do you find? He spends a lot of time hanging out with prostitutes, tax collectors, sinners, and they like being around him. How? Why? It's a combination. He had convictions. He did not let them go to hang out with them. The Bible is very clear. Jesus is the only person ever walk this planet and live a sin-free life. He was able to do that, engaging the world first with a face, and posture of love. In fact, the only time you see Jesus engaging with the world around him in a place of judgment, who are the only people he judges? People that make it hard for other people to know God. It's the only group of people he's ever speaking in judgmental terms to. It's possible, church, to have a strong back, but to have your face say a lot more about you. In fact, that we're not sending an exterior message without people really seeing in your life the face and heart and love of God. How do we, how do, we do this? The Bible even says, this is Jesus, this is, the Bible says, I love this, John 1, 14, says this of Jesus, in the word 
became flesh and dwelt among us, and we have seen his glory. Glory is of the only Son from the Father, full of grace and truth. Full of grace and truth. I want to share a practical example of how we might do this. So like, man, I, I get it. It's like the humility, strength. I got a strong back, loving face. But like, what does that look like? And how do I handle that? Well, first of all, before we get to what it looks like, can I just let you know what it's not? Here's a couple of responses that we have a tendency to lean towards that are not what I'm talking about. The first response that does not influence culture is a dogmatic response. A dogmatic response is essentially, I'm right, you're wrong. Now, the funny thing about a dogmatic response is this. You can be technically right with a dogmatic response. It just ain't helping anybody. You can be right. That's just not all that functionally helpful for someone that's far from God. It's a dogmatic response. Here's another response that's not really helping anybody out. It would be us as a church saying essentially this. Go on, do what you want to do in the name of love. We're going to water things down a little bit. I said it this way last week. As if we need to water down God's word, doing so would, would essentially carry this premise, that we love God more, or we love people more than God did when he wrote his word. You know, it would essentially be us saying, I could judge the world better than God. I would write better laws than God would write. So why don't we go ahead and water things down to a place where it would be more tolerable for our culture. Daniel was neither dogmatic nor humanistic. He took some of the strongest stands you'll ever see in the Bible. Shadrach, Meshach, Abednego, Daniel in the lion's den. These dudes had a strong back, y'all. But the reason they influenced culture was they understood they had to do it full of grace and truth. Daniel resolved that he wasn't going to eat something. But then he's like, hey, man, um, would it be all right if I didn't go ahead and eat that food right there? It's a humble posture. How do we do this? What does it look like to be full of grace and truth? I want to share an example. And please understand, I don't share this example because I get this right all the time. I wrestle, as we all do, with what it looks like to walk full of grace and truth. A number of years ago, when Rachel and I were pastoring Christian Life Assembly, a girl came to church one day, and we had the chance to talk with her after the service. And we had a personal conversation that eventually moved in her, into her breaking down in tears, telling us that, she had an abortion booked for three days for that Wednesday of that week. And she was convinced that she really wanted to go through with it, but there was something in her that was kind of confused and torn about it. And so she decided, not really having a walk with God, but she decided she was going to show up to church and just see if she could somehow relieve that confusion that she felt. So she asked me what I thought. So I said to her, I said, um, first thing I need you to know is that whether or not you go ahead with this abortion or not, you're welcome back here next week, and we'll love you through whatever decision you make. 
leading with a face of grace, leading from a place of belonging, leading full of grace. Now, of course, the conversation did wrap itself back around to truth, and I was able to say to her, listen, as a pastor, I believe the life that's inside of you was made by God. I believe, you know, if you'll go through with this and have this baby to term, we'll do everything we can as a church to surround you with a community that would support you in that decision. But once again, please understand, whatever decision that you make, you're welcome back here next week. We'll love you through it. It's a lot easier to lead with your back. Because you're only going to have to have a conversation with the person that agrees to you and wants to come back. When you have a conversation with your face, sometimes you're going to have to have a follow-up conversation that is weeping in tears with someone that made a wrong choice and is now stuck in brokenness. But they will understand that they can come back. I'm happy to tell you today, there's a little girl. She no longer lives in our city, but she's running around and she talks to her mom. Because God gave us the grace one day to lead with both grace and truth. Please understand that that's not just a pastor's response. That's not just something that Rach and I need to do in the conversations we have. Everyone in this room today, someone's life is hanging in the balance on the other side of you walking in grace and truth. Now, who is there in your world today that the life that God has for them is on the other side of your grace and truth? Is there a, mind, a person that comes to your mind today when I say that someone's life is hanging in the balance on the other side of walking in humility and strength? Church, this is Resonate Church. We have a backbone. We have some things that we believe. And understand, if it costs us everything to say them, we will say them. If it costs us the ability to rent from the school board because we say some things that don't line up with what our culture says, we will be meeting in a park as a church. Because we are going to preach God's word and we are going to have a firm backbone. But understand that we don't lead with our backs. It's not the first conversation we have. It should not be the first thing that you believe and think about our church when you show up here. You should be able to leave here knowing that you belong before you behave. That you're a part of this community before you ever subscribe to any Christian beliefs. Understand that we are going to lead full of grace and truth. Come on, somebody, how many are thankful that the way God dealt with you was full of grace and truth, the way he saw you, he saw you in grace. And he loved you enough to tell you the truth. A truth, a church that doesn't have grace will be mean. <laughs> a church that doesn't have truth will be meaningless. Who are we when culture changes? So let's get back to Daniel. I love this. Daniel's e evangelism response. He says this to Ashpenaz. He says, test your servants for 10 days. Let us be given vegetables to eat and water to drink. Then let our appearance and the appearance of the youths who eat the king's food be observed by you. Here, here's his evangelism strategy. Daniel basically says this. You do your thing. I do mine. Let's compare them in 10 days. Like, Watch how I raise my kids. Watch how I do relationships. Watch how I live generously. Watch how I put God first and not me first. And then let's come together and let's just see kind of how things go for you and how they're going 
for me, that's, that's essentially his evangelism strategy. He's like, and he's like, test us. Let's do it for 10 days. And by the way, 10 in the Bible, I love this. 10 is always a number for testing. You see the 10 commandments. Test of our obedience. And of course, in the end, it ultimately proves that we can't fully obey God's law, which is why we would end up needing a savior. It was a test that really was pointing us to a savior. The disciples were tested. Ten days in the, uh, in the upper room after the ascension of Jesus Christ, they, they, were, uh, they were tested before God would send them out into the world. The tithe is a test. Giving 10% of what you earn to God. It, it's a test. It's a test. As to, you know, listen, you're saying, you know, does God need my money? No, God doesn't need your money. It's a test of whether or not you trust God. And you're like, Pastor, are you saying, if I don't tithe, I don't trust God? I'm not at all saying that. Well, the Bible is, but I'm not. <laughs> Listen to what he says after this in verse number 13. He says, deal with your servants according to what you see. According to what you see. Evangelism strategy of Resonate Church. Live lives that people can For someone to see your life, you've got to be close enough for them to see your life. We live lives close enough for people to see because we have a message that can change the world. We have a message that the lie of the enemy ever since the beginning of time has been the one thing that has led us into this place where we can do nothing but cope with the pain in our lives. Understand, church, the reason we need to get this right is that tens of thousands of people in our city, their lives are hanging in the balance of us actually knowing how to engage with a culture that runs on a Babylon mentality full of grace and truth, leading with humility and strength. You, would you join me in prayer and bow your heads all over the room? Jesus, we come before you today. Lord, we elevate you. In this culture that runs on a Babylon mentality, we say that we need you and we put you in the top place in our lives. In this moment, Jesus, we lift you up. We acknowledge you. We put you first. And we even acknowledge that sometimes this Babylon mentality creeps into our lives and it creeps into the church. God, we put you first today. We lean into you. In this atmosphere, maybe just take a moment and in your own words, just begin to put God first in your life. Jesus, I need you. Because you didn't come this morning to hear a word from me. You came to have an encounter with the God who can take you from confusion to peace. So right now, just in this moment, I pray that your hearts and your minds would be enveloped in the presence of God by the power of the Holy Spirit. God, we look to you. I believe this may be someone here today, and this is so important to us as a church, that, that you came into this place far from God. Either you've never made a decision to put Jesus first in your life, to say, I need a Savior. I do feel confused. I need to put God in my life. The Bible makes it very clear that 
because Jesus died on a cross and rose again, you can be completely forgiven and completely free and have eternal life in Jesus Christ. And so today, before we leave this place, I want to give you an opportunity to pray a prayer to say, I want to put Jesus first in my life. So if that's you, you're far from God, maybe because you've never made a decision to follow Jesus or because, you know, you've walked away from God and today you know you need to come back to him. Today, I want to give you a moment of response. What I'm going to ask you to do is just in a moment, I'm going to count to three. When I get to three, I'm going to ask you to shoot your hand up in the air and not because raising your hand is going to save you and no one else is looking around. We won't call you forward. We won't center you out. I just want you to have a moment of decision today where you say before God, I'm all in and I'm going to choose to follow you. Today, I'm going to become a Christian. So if that's you in the place today, you say, yeah, today I'm going to choose to follow Jesus. My life is his. Today, I'm going to become a Christian and follow Jesus. Would you raise your hand on the count of three and then we're just going to pray together. One, been praying for you today. Two, three, just shoot your hand up. Say, yeah, it's my decision today. It's my decision today. Thank you, God. Thank you, God. Thank you, God. Come on, church, let's pray together. But those who are making that decision today, just say this. Say, dear Jesus, my life is yours and my full surrender. And I'm going to follow you. I believe you died rose again so I could be forgiven. Thank you for saving me. My life is yours. I'm going to follow you. In Jesus' name. And everybody said, come on, church, come on, resonate. Can we put our hands together for those that made that decision today?